storms came early with rain, and between the rains, fierce winds struck the island and filled the air with sand. During this time, I made myself another dress, but most of the days I spent fashioning a spear to catch the giant devilfish. I had seen the spear made, as I had seen my father make bows and arrows, yet I knew little about it, no more than I had about the others. Still, I remembered how it looked and how it was used. From these memories I made it, after many errors and many hours of work, sitting on the floor while Rontus slept nearby and the storms beat upon the roof. Four of the sea elephant teeth were left, and though I broke all except one, this I worked down to a head with a barbed point. I then made a ring and fastened it to the end of the shaft, and into this ring fitted the head, which was tied to a long string made of braided sinew. When the spear was thrown and struck a devilfish, the head came loose from the shaft. The shaft floated on the water, but the pointed barb was held by the string which was tied to your wrist. This spear was especially good because it could be thrown from a distance. On the first day of spring, I went down to Coral Cove with my new spear. I knew it was spring because that morning at dawn, the sky was filled with flocks of darting birds. They were small and black and came only at this time of year. They came out of the south and stayed for two suns, hunting food in the ravines, and then flew off in one great flight toward the north. Rontu did not go with me to the beach because I had let him out of the fence and he had not returned. The wild dogs had been to the house many times that winter and he had paid no heed to them, but the night before, after they had come and gone, he had stood at the fence. He stood and whined and walked up and down. It worried me to see him act so strangely, and when he refused to eat, I finally let him out. Now I pushed the canoe into the water and drifted toward the reef where the devilfish lived. The water was so clear that it was like the air around me. Far down, the sea ferns moved as though a breeze were blowing there, and among them swam the devilfish, trailing their long arms. It was good to be on the sea after the winter storms, with the new spear in my hand, but all the morning as I hunted the giant devilfish, I kept thinking of Rontu. I should have been happy, yet thinking of him I was not. Would he come back, I wondered, or had he gone to live with the wild dogs? Would he again be my enemy? If he were my enemy, I knew that I could never kill him, now that he had been my friend. When the sun was high, I hid the canoe in the cave we had found, for once more it was the time the Aleuts might return, and with the two small bass I had speared, though not the giant devilfish, I went up the cliff. I had planned to make a trail from the cave to my house, but had decided that it could be seen from a ship and by anyone standing on the headland. The climb was steep. As I reached the top, I paused for breath. The morning was quiet, except for the noise of the little birds flying from bush to bush and the cries of the gulls who did not like these strangers. Then I heard the sound of dogs fighting. The sound came from far off, perhaps from the ravine, and taking my bow and arrows, I hurried in that direction. I went down the path which led to the spring. There were tracks of the wild dogs around the spring, and among them I saw the large ones of Rontu. The tracks led away through the ravine which winds to the sea. I heard again the distant sound of fighting. I went slowly through the ravine because of my bow and arrows. 
At last I came to the place where it opens into a meadow right at the edge of a low sea cliff. Sometimes in the summers, a long time ago, my people had lived here. They gathered shellfish on the rocks and ate them here, leaving the shells which after many summers had formed a mound. Over this grass had grown, and a thick-leaved plant called Gnapan. On this mound, among the grasses and the plants, stood Rantu. He stood facing me with his back to the sea cliff. In front of him, in a half circle, were the wild dogs. At first, I thought that the pack had driven him there against the cliff and were getting ready to attack him. But I soon saw that two dogs stood out from the rest of the pack between it and Rantu, and that their muzzles were wet with blood. One of these dogs was the leader who had taken Rantu's place when he had come to live with me. The other one, which was spotted, I had never seen. The battle was between Rantu and these two dogs. The rest were there to fall upon whichever was beaten. So great was the noise made by the pack, they had not heard me as I came through the brush, nor did they see me now as I stood at the edge of the meadow. They sat on their haunches and barked, with their eyes fixed on the others. But I was sure that Rantu knew I was somewhere near, for he raised his head and smelled the air. The two dogs were trotting back and forth along the foot of the mound, watching Rantu. The fight had probably started at the spring, and they had stalked him to this place where he had chosen to fight. The sea cliff was behind him, and they could not reach him from that direction, so they were trying to think of some other way. It would have been easier if one could have attacked him from the back and one from the front. Rantu did not move from where he stood on top of the mound. Now and again he lowered his head to lick a wound on his leg, but whenever he did he always kept his eyes on the two dogs trotting up and down. I could have shot them, for they were within reach of my bow, or driven off the pack, yet I stood in the brush and watched. This was a battle between them and Rantu. If I stopped it, they would surely fight again, perhaps at some other place less favorable to him. Rantu again licked his wound, and this time he did not watch the two dogs moving slowly past the mound. I thought it was a lure, and so it proved to be, for suddenly they ran toward him. They came from opposite sides of the mound, ears laid back and teeth bared. Rantu did not wait for the attack, but leaping at the nearer one, turned his shoulder and with his head lowered caught the dog's foreleg. The pack was quiet. In the silence... I could hear the sound of the bone breaking, and the dog backed away on three legs. The spotted dog had reached the top of the mound. Whirling away from the one he had crippled, Rantu faced him, but not in time to fend off the first heavy rush. Teeth slashed at his throat, and as he turned his body, struck him instead on the flank, and he went down. At that moment, while he lay there on the grass with the dog circling warily and the pack moving slowly toward him, Without knowing that I did so, I fitted an arrow to the bow. A good distance separated Rantu from his attacker, and I could end the battle before he was wounded further or the pack fell upon him. Yet as before, I did not send the arrow. The spotted dog paused and turned in his tracks and again leaped, this time from behind. Rantu was still lying in the grass with his paws under him, and I thought he did not see that the other was upon him. But crouching there, he suddenly raised himself and at the same time fastened his teeth in the dog's throat. Together they rolled off the mound, yet Rantu did not let go. The pack sat restless in the grass. In a short time, Rantu rose to his feet and left the spotted dog where it lay. 
He walked to the top of the mound and lifted his head and gave a long howl. I had never heard the sound before. It was the sound of many things that I did not understand. He trotted past me and up the ravine. When I got to the house, he was there waiting, as if he had not been away or nothing had happened. And all the time he lived, Rantu never left again. And the wild dogs, which for some reason divided into two packs, after that never returned to the headland. Flowers were plentiful that spring because of the winter's heavy rains. The dunes were covered with mats of sandflowers, which are red and have tiny eyes that are sometimes pink and sometimes white. Yuccas grew tall among the rocks of the ravine. Their heads were clustered with curly globes no larger than pebbles and the color of the sun when it rises. Lupins grew where the springs ran. From the sunny cliffs and crevices where no one would think anything could grow sprang the little red and yellow fountains of the Kamo bush. Birds were plentiful, too. There were many hummers which can stand still in the air and look like bits of polished stone and have long tongues to sip honey with. There were blue jays, which are very quarrelsome birds, and black and white peckers that pecked holes in the yucca stalks and the poles of my roof, even in the whale bones of the fence. Red-winged blackbirds also came flying out of the south, and flocks of crows, and a bird with a yellow body and a scarlet head, which I had never seen before. A pair of these birds made a nest in a stunted tree near my house. It was made from strings of the yucca bush and had a small opening at the top and hung down like a pouch. The mother laid two speckled eggs, which she and her mate took turns sitting on. After the eggs hatched, I put shreds of abalone under the tree, and these she fed her young. The young birds were not like their mother and father, being gray and very ugly, but anyway, I took them from the nest and put them in a small cage that I made of reeds. So later in the spring, when all the birds except the crows left the island and flew off to the north, I had these two for friends. They soon grew beautiful feathers like those of their parents and began to make the same sound, which was creep, creep. But it was soft and clear, and much sweeter than the cries of the gulls, or the crows, or the talk of the pelicans, which sounds like the quarreling of toothless old men. Before summer came, the cage was too small for my two birds, but instead of building a larger one, I cut the tips of their wings, one wing of each so they could not fly away, and let them loose in the house. By the time their wings had grown out, they had learned to take food from my hand. They would jump down from the roof and perch on my arm and beg, making their reep-reep sound. When their wings began to feather out, I cut them again. This time I let them loose in the yard where they hopped around hunting food, perched on Rontu, who by now had gotten used to them. The next time they feathered out, I did not trim their wings, but they never flew farther away than the ravine and would always come back at night to sleep, and no matter how much they had eaten, to ask for food. One, because he was larger, I called Tainer. I named him after a young man I liked who had been killed by the Aluts. The other was called Lurai, which was a name I wished I'd been called instead of Karana. During the time that I was taming the birds, I made another skirt. This one I also made of yucca fiber softened in water and braided into twine. I made it just like the others, with folds running lengthwise. 
It was open on both sides and hung to my knees. The belt I made of sealskin, which could be tied in a knot. I also made a pair of sandals from sealskin for walking over the dunes when the sun was hot, or just to be dressed up when I wore my new skirt of yucca twine. Often I would put on the skirt and the sandals and walk along the cliff with Rantu. Sometimes I made a wreath of flowers and fastened it in my hair. After the Aleuts had killed their men at Coral Cove, all the women of our tribe had singed their hair short as a sign of mourning. I had singed mine too with a faggot, but now it had grown long again and came to my waist. I parted it and let it fall down my back, except when I wore a wreath. Then I made braids and fastened them with long whalebone pins. I also made a wreath for Rantu's neck, which he did not like. Together we would walk along the cliff looking at the sea, and though the white men's ship did not return that spring, it was a happy time. The air smelled of flowers and birds sang everywhere. <laughs> 